2: Hello, it's Mike Pesca, host of The Gist and of this, The Saturday Show, which brings you the best of The Gist from the past week and the past. Oh, everything beyond the past week. As we have and will be doing for the near future, we wanted to highlight an episode of not even mad, a segment of an episode. In fact, this was the second segment of our most recent show where we looked at the midterms and asked, "Well, does that mean that campaigning on things like CRT and denying kids medical care if they're transgender, is that off the table as a political issue? Host Jamie Kerchuk, Virginia Heffernan, and I discuss. Afterwards, we bring you one from the not. So far past. Molly Ball, Time Magazine writer, wrote a biography of the retiring as Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, and it blessedly had only one word in its title and no subtitle. And that word was Pelosi. It does the job. So please enjoy a most recent segment from Not Even Mad, which if you like, please subscribe directly to the Not Even Mad feed, and then A segment from May 15th of 2020, me talking with Molly Ball about Pelosi.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS?
2: And we're back with Not Even Mad. The Democrats exceeded midterm expectations, but this guy was perhaps the night's biggest individual winner. States and cities governed by leftist politicians have seen crime skyrocket. They've seen their taxpayers abused. They've seen medical authoritarianism imposed, and they've seen American principles discarded. That was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. It was a typical politician's framing, which, along with an early reference to choosing education over indoctrination, maybe represented the stray remnants of the issues that were such big winners for Republicans in the 2021 off-year election, namely parents' rights or CRT in public schools or wading into medical questions or even questions of who could participate on girls' sports teams. Andrew Sullivan, engaging in self-reflection in his newsletter, wrote that the strong showing for Democrats on Tuesday, quote, did not amount to the kind of decisive rejection of democratic leftism I favored and suspected would happen. I was wrong, is Sullivan talking or writing. I remain convinced that wokeness is terribly destructive to liberal society, but my obsessions are obviously not everyone's. Okay, it's tempting after an election to ascribe the totality of the winning party Party's agenda as a total winner and the losing party's agenda as a complete disaster. Also, let's take into account that DeSantis, Greg Abbott in Texas, Brian Kemp in Georgia, they all did have big victories and all campaigned and governed on issues like schooling and trans rights. But let's talk about the whatever you want to call it woke schooling agenda that was supposed to help so much. Republicans in their quest to retain or gain power. Virginia, you were really excited about talking about this. Do you think the midterms are the death knell for CRT mongering and the like as an electoral cheat code?
3: I mean, I'm going to say I'm going to say a few things that I hope they won't exactly be what you guys expect from me. Um, The main thing is that I strongly dislike arcana in politics. And this is uh, this is on both sides Uh, in 20 and it could be even in the center. In 2012, Paul Ryan, I don't know if you remember this, but for some reason, he was hoping to mandate or be part of a Jim Jordan proposed bill to mandate transvaginal ultrasounds for pregnant women. It was sort of a blip, but maybe you remember it. I've had many ultrasounds in my life and been to many gynecologists, probably unlike the two of you, although I don't want to presume. And uh, and I don't know what a transvaginal ultrasound is. Uh, All I could... Think it's great was, branding. This,
2: it sounds fun.
3: It does sound a lot, <laughs> like a lot of fun, right? You're, yeah, there's trans, and I don't know. It seems kind of um, like I imagine some tesseract involved. Anyway, <laughs> all of a sudden, the concept of transvaginality uh, was in the public square, and you know, we had poverty was on, on the rise. We had uh, you know, we were still recovering from the um, from the financial crisis. We had two wars, and transvaginality is just far too clinical and too arcane a subject to waste time on critical race theory. I mean, come on. It's transvaginality all over again. To ask voters to loop legitimate concerns about their kids' education, which right now is literacy and math, right? Those are the things that we expect from schools, and those are the things that have been falling off since the pandemic. So to suddenly asked them to think about this postdoc methodology that I s- actually studied in graduate school and still couldn't tell you exactly. Uh, you know, I found what I heard useful. I still couldn't tell you exactly what it would mean for a kindergarten or an eighth grader or a, a senior in high school. Why not address parents' real and universal concerns that literacy and numeracy are in decline in the U.S. since COVID?
4: Yeah, I was going to associate myself with Andrew as well, and that I think I place too much emphasis on uh, popular discontent over woke issues. But I think the error that we made was in thinking that these would have an impact on federal election races. These are ultimately issues that are decided at the local school board level and the state level. Um, So they were crucial in Glenn Youngkin winning in 2021. I think they were actually the decisive issue was schools and education policy. Um, I think they were crucial in Ron DeSantis becoming the uh, extremely popular leader that he is in Florida today. So I would not discount these issues in American politics. And I think that the Democrats and liberals more broadly are doing themselves a disservice if they think that Concern over issues like crime, certainly, which is also another issue that is more uh, that is dealt with more at the local state level. Um, issues like crime, wokeness, if you want to call it that, CRT, um, trans, partic- trans issues. Um, there is uh, a, a groundswell of concern over the direction that the Democratic Party and the left. Has taken on these issues but i think voters are smart and they realize that you know what these are not issues that are going to be ultimately decided in a senate race or a congressional race it's better for me to express my views on these by voting for candidates who support my view of things at say the school board level in the state house the state senate and the governor
2: right the midterms don't show that wokeness is off the table especially when you look at good point federal uh, elections. If you look at the governor's map and the governors that were successful, I named a few. Almost all the governors in states that we associate as red states that won re election and won re election handily, and there were more of them than Democrats, those maps pretty much, I was going to say map onto, but transpose very nicely or very scarily onto the maps of states which have banned trans girls from participating in girls' sports. So it is It is active. I don't know how much it drives the average voters. I would say that it was a big driver of that one election we all paid a lot of attention to, Youngkin versus McAuliffe. But that's because McAuliffe, you know, had the classic gaffe where he said, I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. And he tried to walk it back. But at a time when parents were concerned, they voted in a governor's race on that issue. Glom out onto that CRT, glom onto that some of the medical interventions that I really think is actually uh, bordering on a, a human rights abuse to ban doctors from doing what doctors do, but I do think that it is an issue. I still think it's an issue in politics, and I also think—and I want to caution—that it would be really wrong to draw too many lessons about what worked and what didn't work on the on the success of the Democrats in the last election. Because—and almost no one is pointing this out—the Democrats lost the last election. What? They exceeded expectations, but they lost in the House. They lost in the Senate. Wait, Mike, you're saying they held the Senate or maybe won a seat. No, there were 20 Senate Republicans who won, 14 Senate Democrats who won. That was the map last time. and We're still pending the results of Georgia. More Republicans won in governor's races. So this whole, oh, let's defer to the winning formula of Democrats, Please realize it was a losing formula. It just didn't lose as badly as everyone thought.
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I, just to focus a little bit more on the on this, uh, the the woke issues. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually I think there's something to this thing of what parents want on school boards. Um, and. I think we're missing what it is. Um, I mean, all this arcana, transvaginal, and critical race theory have got to be a proxy for something else. Um, and I don't think it's a proxy for just racism, um, you know. And and I and then and then the anger that you know someone who objects to critical race theory is racist, and then you get into another conversation about who's racist and who called me names and whatever. You know, I think the touchstone here is the uh 1925 scopes trial how we came to think about what parents were afraid of if i may in uh school curricula in high school curricula and that is a, such an interesting case because the subject evolution and darwinism was not of any interest to any of the parents they 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 just noticed that their kids were coming home saying they didn't believe in god right teenagers And so they scoured the curriculum to figure out what could be making them feel this way. This is a time when Tennessee schools had crosses all over them. They were praying in school. There was nothing about the school that was atheist or even secular. And yet they, so they looked through everything and you could find, you know, if you wanted to find something that contradicted the literal truth of the Bible, you could say, well, water doesn't behave in a way that would let the Red Sea part. So this part of our chemistry class is wrong. But anyway, they they turned up this biology class. It seemed confusing to them. And they decided that it, because it contradicted the story of Genesis, was the culprit and that parents should be allowed to ban it. I think there's actually a kernel of something kind of moving in that story and in the CRT story, honestly, which is like we all are worried that our kids are going to adopt new views, they're going to pierce themselves, or come home not believing in God, or come home with a different religion, or come home communists, or come home Alex P. Keaton. And the I do, I do think that in this conversation with school boards, we have to recognize how fraught that is for parents who feel like their kids are going to come under the influence of uh, ways of thinking about the world that are not theirs. There must be a way to pull this back to treat the emotional core issue of the fear of losing your children without going into, you know, these silly proxies about uh, subjects no one really understands. Well,
2: that's certainly a framing favorable to the idea that (laughs) incorporating the 1619 project directly into the curriculum is just progress purely and doesn't have any attendant problems along with it. I think that if you look at the rise of a group called Moms for Liberty, they're certainly opportunistic and they're everywhere. And have friends in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and they overrun the school board and they're very much organized. And they're they agree with the likes of uh, DeSantis and Greg Abbott. but and, and they are doing what you're saying, but. I would reject just because parents have an anxiety. They're wrong to have the anxiety that I, yeah. de facto the anxiety is just them getting in the way of progress. Although I will, because you mentioned the scopes trial, I'll try to correctly quote inherit the wind from memory where <laughs> they, where they talk about uh, the fear of progress and the proxy character for HL Mencken, though it could have been uh, Clarence Darrow says, you know, there is always a price with progress. I can give you the airplane, but the clouds will stink of gasoline and the birds will lose their wonder. So yes, that is true. The birds may lose their wonder if we adopt the 1619 project.
4: Yeah, I don't think it's a very fair comparison to compare the parents who are concerned about their children being taught that if they belong to a member of a certain race, that they therefore bear the guilt of what other people did who are members of that same race generations ago. I don't think that they're that we should be likening parents who are concerned about their their children being taught, you know, abstruse gender theory, we should be likening them to parents who thought that, you know, evolution should not be taught. I think that's a very unfair comparison. I think that if you do look at the curriculum in some some of these school districts what's being pushed now is really radical and is inappropriate and should not be taught. Uh, i don't think you can all just write it off as racism or uh, transphobia i think these are genuine i mean i think i just said legitimate, it, legitimate, i'm not saying you are i'm not saying you no i'm not saying you are but i think that this is a legitimate real issue you know i again that's why i'm i'm afraid that this uh, i think both sides are perhaps interpreting this election in the wrong way i think a lot of republicans are not realizing that um this was a repudiation of Trump and Trumpism while a lot of Democrats are mistaking their so-called victory or their better than expected performance um, as basically, you know, carte blanche to continue pursuing um, cultural policies that are not popular with the American people or that, and that are going to inspire the very backlash that they claim not to want.
3: I mean, I think maybe in some of these school board meetings, we should talk about education and guilt. I mean, you know i definitely learned about class conflicts all the way through uh all the way through high school and co- and had act- a, a card carrying communists in addition to arch conservatives among my public school teachers and i i don't remember f- that guilt was something i took away from a kind of socialist analysis or communist analysis um i don't i don't know why this thing that people are being educated into some guilt about their families or suddenly they have to bear all this guilt i mean l- like horrible things have gone on in history some of th- the things have been done by people who look like you and some to people who look like you. But projecting guilt is a weird way of thinking about history. Um, It's a weird way to cloud your own learning.
2: Mm. (laughs) Well, I do have one piece of practical advice, and that is if you want to be a communist, just don't carry the card. The fellow communists aren't going to want to see the card, and it just will give you a way to death. Who's the most powerful woman in the history of the United States? Now, if you pause for a second and said, well, I don't know, Sandra Day O'Connor, Eleanor Roosevelt, it says something because the answer is clearly Nancy Pelosi. What does it say? Well, maybe it says something about the effectiveness of her critics. Maybe it says something about the relative power of the House of Representatives these days. Or maybe it says something about the fact that up until now, she hasn't had a great biography, but now she does. Pelosi, written by the journalist Molly Ball, is out now. Molly, welcome to The Gist.
1: Thank you so much for having me and thank you for that great plug.
2: Yes. So let me also say that, aren't you glad that Marsha Fudge didn't beat Pelosi? Then you'd have to have written a book called Fudge.
1: <laughs> well, everybody loves Fudge, right?
2: Yeah, I guess.
1: Might've been an easier self.
2: <laughs> so... Let's start with who she was and where she came from. Not Marsha Fudge, Nancy Pelosi, which is Baltimore. And she's the scion of a political family. But as I was thinking about it, it's an interesting experiment because most uh, people who grew up in politics and went into politics got the benefit of the family name or at least territorial rights. They go into politics in an area near where their family is famous. So here we have Nancy Pelosi. She learns about politics. She studies it. It's the family business but then she moves across the country. And the fact that her last name is different from the last name of her father and brother who were mayors of Baltimore, well, that doesn't really help her. It's kind of an interesting natural experiment, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that while obviously there's been a lot of focus on the family business and what she must have learned from her father, who was a congressman representing Baltimore and then became the mayor of Baltimore when she was seven years old, There's been a lot of focus on the skills that she would have learned from that household. And I think that's clearly correct. But at the same time, as you say, she didn't really benefit from that electorally. And she did develop a lot of those skills herself. You know, her five older brothers were all sort of consciously schooled in the political arts by their parents, but she was not because she was a girl. Nobody expected that she might go into the family business and her parents uh, hoped that she would become a nun instead. So I think that she deserves a lot of credit for sort of creating her own political image, political profile, 3000 miles away from the D'Alessandro family that was so prominent in Baltimore in a place where that name, even if she, she did have it, wouldn't have meant anything.
2: Yeah, and perhaps the most important and impactful Alessandro was Annunziata, who's her mother, who obviously helped shape her personality at least as much as her dad did.
1: Yes, and, and I really wanted to return the focus to her mother with this book. Her mother, Anunciata Lombardi, was her maiden name. She had a lot of hopes and dreams herself. She wanted to go to law school. She wanted to be an auctioneer. She wanted to start a business. She invented a beauty product, so she wasn't able... pursue some of those dreams. And uh, I think because of that, Nancy Pelosi always wants people to belatedly recognize her mother and the important role that her mother played uh, in her life and in the family business as sort of the the strategist behind her her father, the politician. And she's very frank about the fact that her mother was stifled in her own hopes and dreams. Nancy Pelosi was not. Uh, But she did come to it rather late in life. She was always political, Literally born into, you know, the Democratic Party, and having helped her father with his elections and his constituent work from the time she was little, and she kept campaigning for the Democratic Party throughout her young adulthood. Uh, when she was, you know, living in Midtown Manhattan with her husband, who was a banker, uh, she would be pushing the stroller around the neighborhood and putting Democratic leaflets under people's doors. And this is a contrast to, you know, this is the 70s when a lot of people's, especially young people, were expressing their political views by going out and protesting, burning draft cards, that kind of thing. That was never her style. She was never an activist in that way. She was a party operative, and so when she followed her husband to his hometown of San Francisco, and after having five children in the space of six years, once she had a little bit of breathing room in her life, it was really through the party that she expressed her political impulses, becoming a fundraiser, becoming a sort of strategist and operative. She was chair of the California Democratic Party, brought the 84 convention to San Francisco and made a failed run for the Democratic National Committee chair, and then a friend of hers who was a member of Congress and who was dying of cancer, called her to her bedside and made her promise to run for that seat in Congress and then had to wage a very difficult campaign for the seat against 13 other candidates in the special election. And that's how she got to Congress in 1987.
2: If you had asked her in 1987, if you could give her a little crystal ball, uh, a Molly crystal ball, if you will, (laughs) uh, cast ahead, And the question is, what about your stances are you most surprised about? So not the fact that you became the first female Speaker of the House or how American politics shaked out, but I'm just trying to get a sense of there's always this criticism of pelosi maybe selling out her ideals or some ideal version of her ideals but let's look at her as the purest distillation of her political idealism it's 1987 she enters the house now you get to know the sort of things that you're championing in 2020 what would most surprise her
1: Well, her ideology, which I've thought about a lot, is a sort of interesting combination of the inheritance she received from her father's Democratic Party, which was very much the New Deal Democratic Party of FDR that wanted to use sort of big government to give benefits to people. And then the San Francisco liberalism that she became an adult around. You know, she was always very pro-environment, pro-gay rights, anti-war, in favor of reproductive rights, interestingly, although her family and her church were against a, a woman's right to choose, she was always in favor of it. But what would surprise her today about the things she believed then? Honestly, I think she's been quite consistent in and the set of values. and 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 she likes to say that, you know, people perceive San Francisco as being out on the far left edge of the political spectrum, But she thinks it's just a few years ahead. So i I think it's possible to look at the way that she's led the House as speaker and say, oh, well she's she's more cautious now because she's more the experience of 2010 maybe taught her to worry more about the frontline members in Republican-leaning districts in order to protect her majority. But I think she would also say that her job as speaker is to represent the breadth of her caucus, and that's the ideological mm-hmm. spectrum from, you know, the AOCs of the world all the way to the sort of conservative Democrats who got her back into the speakership, right, by winning those conservative districts.
2: You know, that what you just said, that is my main insight into Nancy Pelosi, that for all her interpersonal skills, her skill at tactics, her skill at communication, which sometimes it's a great skill, sometimes less so, she understands right now, she understands this one big truth about the Democratic Party. She never wavers from it. And the truth is that it's her job to represent the entire caucus, which means she can't be outflanked or hurt or flayed by the democratic socialist aligned members of the caucus. She can't get pulled off that one truth by critics in the press. She will always represent the interests of everyone in her caucus. She knows where the median point in her caucus is. And that's where she's going to direct her efforts. And most of the criticism seems to me, people who disagree that that should be the median point, but she's a realist. She says, that's where it is. And that's who I'm going to do my job with that median point in mind.
1: I would agree with that for the most part. I would take it one step further because the thing that I think you have to understand about Nancy Pelosi is that she's always focused on results, right? The word one of her uh, mentors used for her was operational. She always wants to get something done. So she's always trying to get the most out of any particular negotiation to pull that legislation toward the left pole. And she personally is a liberal, is a progressive, is not a socialist, but is very much in the sort of liberal heart of the of the party caucus, Uh, but she wants at the end of the day to get something done. So she's going to negotiate as hard as possible and she's a notoriously tough negotiator. And she has the credibility in her caucus to get all the votes lined up for whatever compromise it is she's negotiated, whether it's with the Republicans in the House, in the Senate, in the White House. But her ultimate goal is to get something done that advances toward her goals as far as possible.
2: So what would Nancy Pelosi admit that she got played on? Or maybe not that big a step. What would she admit that a tactic or strategy that she employed that did not work and it was her fault?
1: Uh, She would not. She doesn't do regret. Ask people (laughs) you're interviewing, what what do you think you look back on and think was a mistake? She will say to you, I don't do regret. It's just not something I indulge. She doesn't do regret and she doesn't do fear. But
2: then how does she learn? Perhaps then how does she does she learn not need from to. I don't mistakes?
1: know. Uh, but no, I mean, there are some things. Clearly, she failed to end the war in Iraq, right, when the Democratic majority was elected in 2007. And that was the mandate they she, had from she voters. She did, They yes, won it was those midterm right. elections because <laughs> the war was going badly and the American electorate wanted to end it and they wanted to send a signal to Washington to end it. And uh, she pushed the Bush administration as hard as she possibly could but they wouldn't do it. And I think there's a pretty interesting analogy there with the Republicans in Obamacare. They pushed as hard as they could to get the Democratic president to go back on his signature legislative achievement. They didn't make a lot of headway, but they did shut down the government and shut down sort of the whole system and legislative process. And Nancy Pelosi did not allow that to happen when her goal of moving the administration failed.
2: So as sexism fades a little bit, it's still there. The ugliest parts of it are still quite ugly. But if you just look at empirical data, more women getting elected, at least professed attitudes are changing. So as, as sexism fades a little bit in public life, and that is to Nancy Pelosi's benefit, moderation becomes more and more anathema. And the word neoliberal becomes a vituperative insult, even though I just always thought it was you know an accurate way to describe some post-war way of thinking are these two trends, are they working at exact opposite speeds to sort of permanently shift her in place as someone who's always dealing with headwinds, even when the headwinds, what the exact headwinds are, change?
1: Look, the, the Democratic Party is getting marginally more liberal in large part because of the younger generation. But these perceptions are mostly shared by a sort of small faction on the left, right? I don't think that you can say that that's a universal sentiment Uh, even among Democrats. In fact, the Democrats just nominated a moderate, uh, an old school moderate, an old moderate, precisely because he was promising this sort of -of middle-of-the-road idea. And at least half of self-identified Democrats consider themselves moderate rather than liberal. So it's not as liberal as a party as it sometimes looks on Twitter. And that goes for women as well. You know, a lot of the women who sort of uprising against Trump since 2016 has been in my view the dominant political dynamic of the last few years. A lot of those women are, you know, suburban women, college educated white women, former Republicans or or former independents who've been sort of galvanized and radicalized but who don't consider themselves to be on, you know, the activist left. So the energized segment of the Democratic Party is not even necessarily only the far left. And and, and the reason that Democrats are the majority in the House is because of those moderate suburban white women. It's because of those people who weren't Democrats before who became Democrats and the candidates, the moderate candidates running in red-leaning districts who were able to convince them that they were reasonable enough to vote for.
2: Nancy Pelosi has been criticized by some factions within her party and even some factions who refuse to identify as a Democrat as not sufficiently resistant, as not opposing Donald Trump as much as she could. My question is, from what you know of her, does she loathe Donald Trump just as much as they do? Does she have that visceral, I don't want to say hatred, maybe her Catholic upbringing wouldn't allow her to admit that, but does she have that visceral disgust with who he is and what he represents just as much as the people who are noisiest about it?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, she was asked that question uh if you recall, a few months ago, when impeachment was underway, and she sort of chased down the reporter who asked it, and 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 uh, chastised him for accusing her of hating the president for exactly that reason, right? She said that that because of her Catholic heritage, you know, hate was out of the question, right. and, and don't don't even mess with me when it comes to that word. So she wouldn't use the word hate, but I think it's very clear that she is viscerally offended uh, yeah. by by him as a person and by everything he represents. That you know she's an institutionalist and when and when we saw her tear up that state of the union speech i think she was just offended by the speech offended by the falsehoods in the speech offended by the spectacle and the sort of defiling of the floor of the house of representatives that went on during the speech but again she's always focused on results and it and and she is pretty cold-blooded when it comes to that she'll still go in there and negotiate on infrastructure even if she has very little uh, respect for the man she's negotiating with, because it's got to be done if she's going to achieve her goals of improving people's lives. So it doesn't really matter what her personal feelings are on that level, right? It only matters what she can get out of the situation to advance the goals that she cares about. And that is going to leave cold some people who just want an emotional response, some people who just want a sort of protest staged, right? Uh, She is going to say, and this is, I think you saw this in, in the way that she resisted impeachment for the better part of a year. I think she would look back on that and say that she was vindicated because even though she eventually went along with the impeachment drive, even though she eventually felt that she had to do it both on the merits and because her caucus had moved to that position, what she said from the beginning was this will be divisive and pointless. We're not going to remove Donald Trump from office. It's not going to happen. And it's going to be divisive. And it's going to take a lot of time and effort and, and take the focus away from the more constructive and, and impactful things that we could be doing. And that pretty much turned out to be the case. And you did have a lot of people on the left arguing, well, what if you just you know move the window of perception by by putting it out there? What if you just fight harder and try and make it happen? Well, they fought as hard as they could. And it didn't, Happen for the same reasons that it was never going to happen. So I think that she is quite disgusted by Trump, but she's not as focused on her personal feelings as she is on what she can achieve.
2: Molly Paul is Time Magazine's national political correspondent. You see her on CNN. Before that, she was writing for The Atlantic, and her new biography is called Pelosi. Thank you, Molly.
1: Thanks so much for having me. It was fun.
2: And that's it for this, the Saturday show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara And The Gist and Not Even Mad are produced by Joel Patterson. We will talk to you Monday. Colleagues privately say that your decision to stay on prohibits the party from having a younger leadership and will be hurt and hurts the party in the long term. What's your response? Oh, oh,
4: oh. Discrimination! Oh. <laughs> oh. Discrimination! Next!